one of his works, offers alternatives uh, to a Christ-centered approach to the Scriptures. In other words, you, you approach the Old Testament, and there's a various kinds of ways that you can approach the Old Testament. And he offers up some of these in one of his writings. He, first of all, says that there are many who have the gold mine approach to reading the Old Testament. So you read the Bible, read the Old Testament as this vast, dark mine in which one occasionally stumbles upon a nugget of inspiration. And he said the result of that approach to preaching or study is confused reading. All right? The second approach is the hero approach. You see this a lot more often, especially in character studies. Not that there's anything wrong with those in themselves, but you look to the Bible as a moral uh, hall of fame that gives us one example after another of uh, heroic spiritual giants to emulate. And the result there is a despairing kind of reading. Well, and you also a kind of an edited kind of reading, because most of these people we look to as moral giants were anything but. And we just kind of edit their lives to make it more palatable for Southern Baptists. Um, then you've got the rules approach. The rules approach is where you read the Bible on the lookout for commands to obey uh, to subtly kind of in, reinforce this sense of personal superiority over others who don't follow those rules. And he says the result there is a pharisaical kind of reading. Um, you know, in fact, there are many texts that doesn't give you any commands. Uh, and, and oftentimes you'll go, well, that text can't be applied. But saying that is kind of like going to the Grand Canyon. How do you apply the Grand Canyon? You don't apply it, you just stand in awe, right? And, there, and oftentimes when we come to the Bible, that's the way it should be applied. It should be just intended to provoke awe. Okay, and wonder and worship. Um, the next approach he offers is the artifact approach, where you read the Bible as this ancient document about events in the Middle East a few thousand years ago that are irrelevant to my life today. And the result there is a bored kind of reading. Then there's the guidebook approach. I like this one. You read the Bible as a roadmap. Uh, to tell me where to work and whom to marry and what shampoo to use. All right? And the result there is a kind of anxious reading. I've got to discern the will of God. Um, anxious kind of reading. And then there's the doctrinal approach. You read the Bible as a theological storehouse to plunder for ammunition for the next theology debate at Starbucks. All right? And trust me, I've seen that. I've seen that very often. And the result there is a cold kind of reading. You come to the text looking for bullets so that you can fire them. All right, There's nothing loving about that. In fact, it's anything but. Uh, now, there's some truth in each of these approaches. Uh, but to make them the dominant theme is to turn the Bible into something it was never meant to be. Uh, a Christ-centered approach takes the Bible on its own terms. One of the most underrated verses in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says, or actually 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, what are the promises? The promises that Paul would have understood from the Old Testament. All the promises 
of God or yes and amen in Jesus Christ, the result is a transformational kind of reading. It transforms you on the spot. And so this approach invites you to take any particular text, okay? And you, you learn how to situate that text in the grander story. All right, the meta-narrative, the story of the Bible that begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. And then you come to terms with how this text finds its consummation, if you will, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation points us to Jesus. He is the sum and He is the substance of of the Holy Spirit's revelatory ministry, uh, the Spirit came to reveal and glorify the Son. In fact, if you will look, and I've given you a few texts we're going to look at on the board. If you look in John 15, listen to what Jesus said um, in verse 26. This is, incidentally, Thursday night before the cross. All right, So this is a pretty important time in Jesus' life. And he says in John 15, 26 to his disciples, When the Helper comes, Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit is coming, and he is coming for one reason, and that is to bear witness about Jesus. Then you look over in chapter 16, verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, the, Jesus will be the focal point of the Holy Spirit's communication to the people of God. Now here's the question. How does the Holy Spirit do this? How does he reveal, how does he glorify the Son? Well, he does it through one predominant means. How do you think that is? The written word which the Holy Spirit Himself has breathed out. And so I told you this is going to be somewhat of a topical sermon, but I think you'll find it instructional. It's not going to be very cumbersome for you because we've got these texts on the board. But I want us just to go through a few of these from the New Testament to show you how the New Testament writers approach their Scriptures. Now, what are their Scriptures? The Old Testament. Remember, the 27 books have not been written yet. They're in the process of being written. So when they speak of the Scriptures, they're thinking primarily in terms of the Old Testament. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, listen to what Paul tells Timothy. This is his deathbed counsel. Paul is about to die. He's given him his final counsel. And he says, 14, you, uh, but it's for you continuing what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Notice how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation, notice, through faith in Christ Jesus. What that tells us is you can take the Old Testament and you can lead someone to faith in Jesus Christ. You can lead someone to Christ. They can be converted just by opening the Old Testament. So that's a very important passage for us. Then if you look over in 1 Peter 1, Here's what Peter, I'm kind of moved uh, in a hurry here so we don't spend too much time on this. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance 
that is perishable or imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now notice that word, uh, through faith for a salvation. Okay? Now if you look down in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the salvation he just spoke of in verse 5, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now, who are the prophets? The Old Testament prophets. Um, searched and inquired carefully. Notice, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them... That's very provocative in itself. The Old Testament prophets are writing by the Spirit of Christ. Okay? Um, what was indicating when he predicted, notice, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, that is the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so here you see the prophets are writing by the Spirit of Christ and they are indicating uh, and predicting the sufferings of Christ and His subsequent glories. And then you look over, uh, for example, in Romans chapter 1, and in verses 1 to 3, a very important passage in Paul's most doctrinal letter, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, notice, through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, notice, concerning his son. The prophets are writing about his son, okay? The, the father's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The prophets speak about this. Now, uh, it's interesting that that's how Paul begins Romans. Notice how he ends Romans. Uh, in Romans chapter 16, this is what we would call a bookend or an inclusio, which kind of emphasizes when you have an inclusio, you have two bookends that say the same thing in uh, in Scripture. And those those two things... Tell us what the main point of the document is about, okay? So Romans 1, 1 to 3 speaks to that. And notice how Paul ends it in Romans chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, notice, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept hidden secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Through the prophets, through the prophetic writings, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. That is found through the prophetic writings. Now, let's turn over to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, uh, Jesus says something quite insightful there uh, that it pertains to this particular subject. In verse 43, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law. Now who, what is he referring there to? Genesis to Deuteronomy. Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. They wrote about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then you look over in chapter 5, in chapter 5 of John, 
you see some very similar language. Verse 39, he's speaking to the Jews. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. What are the Scriptures? The Old Testament. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Then looking down in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Genesis to Deuteronomy, Jesus is saying was about me. But if you do not believe his writings... How you, will you believe my words? And then you look in Acts. I mean, we could spend so much time in Acts. I'm just going to give you a, just a sample here. If you look at Acts chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Now, here's what uh, Peter and the disciples are saying. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets... That his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? By all the prophets. Not some of the prophets. Every prophet. All the prophets spoke about the fact that the Christ would suffer. And he said, this has now been fulfilled. And then if you look in chapter 10, and we are skipping over so many other wonderful examples where you have... Guys who are uh, showing Jesus as the fulfillment. Notice in verse 43, To him, all the prophets, there again, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets. Then look in chapter 17. You have the same kind of language. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And Paul went, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. Uh, he reasoned with them, notice, from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's reasoning from the Scriptures. What are his Scriptures? The Old Testament. In the first century, the Christian Scriptures was the Old Testament. All right, And then if you look in chapter 18, you have this same kind of language. Acts 18, verse 27. And when he finished, or when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, and he wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Notice how these guys handle the Scriptures. Not in any way like what we saw in all these other different approaches. The gold mine approach, the hero approach. They took the Old Testament and they centered, they honed in on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then if you look in chapter, I think Acts 26 would be a good one. Is that the one we have up on the board? Yes. In Acts chapter 26... It says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Did you know you could pull that out of the Old Testament? Well, the New Testament uh, writer certainly believed that you could. And then you look in chapter 28. Uh, 
as you bring Acts to a close. Verse 23, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. Paul's in prison here. And from morning till evening, how would you like that for a sermon? Uh, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. What is the Old Testament about? It's about Jesus. And then we'll just look at one more passage. Uh, Colossians 1. If uh, Paul, if you had one chance to ask Paul any questions, one of the things you would ask him, what do you center on when you preach? He tells you right here in Colossians 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim. That's what we preach. We preach Christ, uh, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Jesus Christ. And so I wanted us to just to kind of do a cursory view of what the New Testament writers thought about the Old Testament, how they approached the Old Testament as we come to this very important verse in Jonah tonight, Acts, or Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now, just for review, uh, we've seen in Jonah 1 that the focus has been on Jonah's flight from the presence of God. He's a believer. Jonah is not an unbeliever. He is a believer. He knows theologically you cannot run from the presence of God. But that's what sin does. It makes you schizophrenic. It makes you go out of your mind. Okay? And he has lost his sense at this moment that the fact that he thinks he could run from the presence of God. Now, this is a very uh, interesting uh, language you see there when he tried to run from the presence of God because he knows you can't. But you know what it also reminds me of? It reminds me of Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, where it says that Cain himself ran from the presence of God. He went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So you have Cain, who's not a believer, and you have Jonah, who is a believer, and both are seeking to flee the presence of God. What is the difference? One is a believer, one isn't. Genesis 4 shows us that when Cain fled from the presence of God, he thrived. I mean, you read Genesis 4, man, he is developing culture. Great, great things are happening in Cain's line. You have the, the development, the rise of the city, the arts, uh, all kinds of things come from Cain's line. A man who has rebelled against God, who's turned his back on God, and he has run from the presence of God. And this is a very important point. Unbelievers can thrive. Okay? In rebellion to God. Believers can't. What is the difference? The hand of the Father is on the believer. The Father's thumb is on the believer. And so He and His love will not allow one of His sons or daughters to thrive in disobedience. An unbeliever can thrive an entire lifetime. In, un, in unbelief and disobedience. Because he or she's not a son or a daughter. Okay? But you know, as parents, when your children rebel, your anger is their hope. The anger of God is the hope of the believer. Because He will not allow you to thrive in rebellion. Okay? And that's what we've seen with Jonah. 
And in verses 4 to 16, we see a storm that God brings on this rebellious son. In fact, it says that he hurled the wind upon the sea. Now, we watch baseball all afternoon. It's one thing to hurl a baseball. But when you can hurl the wind, you're special. Okay? And, and so you have here a God who... Uh, who hurls this wind. And so verses 4 to 5, the storm begins. In verses 5 to 10, you have the storm continuing. And then in verses 11 to 15, you have the storm worsening. But then in verse 16, the storm concludes. The storm of God's anger. What Jonah's been trying to do is forsake his call. That is utterly a futile project if you're a believer. You just can't. God will not allow it. He wants to move to a place beyond God's reach. That's why he goes to Tarshish. Isaiah, which was written in the same century as the time of Jonah, in the 700s, okay? Jonah, Isaiah began to write in the year uh, that Uzziah died, which was 740 A.D. So this was a generation after Jonah who was, who was acting in the, er, or the early 700s. Uh, Isaiah says of Tarshish, that it was one of the places where Yahweh's fame was not yet known. So Jonah wants to run to a place where God is not known. He does not want to be with God's people. That's one of the earmarks of an unbeliever, or let's just say a sinful believer. A sinful believer does not like to be with the people of God. All right? He wants to go exactly in the opposite direction of the people of God. He wants to run from the presence of God. And that is so foolish. God can hurl wind. I mean, you, you can't outrun wind. We need to learn that from Jonah chapter 1. And so he runs, but the more he moves away from the divine presence in the boat, he goes down into the boat and he falls asleep. He's got some kind of weird peace in the midst of his disobedience. The mar these mariners who are wicked polytheists, they are, they are making their move. They are moving closer to God. Rather, God is moving closer to them. You have in verse 5 this generic Elohim, God, the gods. Or in verse 6, you have the gods, I Elohim. In verse 10, they recognize that John is fleeing from Yahweh. And then you have in verse 16, they make a confession. I believe these mariners are saved through the reluctant prophet. And the reason we said that is but they are using the covenantal name, the Lord, Yahweh, and then they bow, they, they offer sacrifices and make a vow to, uh, to Yahweh. I believe these men were saved. But initially, they tried to do it their way. Jonah had told them, throw me over the boat. If you want this, this sea, uh, this raging storm to cease, you need to throw me over the boat. But they refused to do that. It says, so they rowed. They rowed. They, they tried to do it their way. Uh, but the more they rowed, um, the, the, the more severe the storm became. And I love what it says in verse 13. But they could not. They could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And these four words become the turning point of the book. Turns out for their good. Because if the storm had, um, had calmed in the midst of their rebellion, they would have never been saved. But it got worse, and so they turned in desperation to God. And they turned 
to God in this way. They heed the word of the prophet who says, Sacrifice me so that God's anger can be satisfied. Through my death, through my substitution, you will be saved. That's essentially what Jonah is saying. And so they do that. They throw him overboard. That's verse 15, you see. Uh, They picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. And then notice verse 17. That brings us to our text. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so these men are saved through the sacrifice of the prophet. Um, they believed the word of the prophet. And they, they, they rest their salvation. They base their salvation on his substitution, on his death. And it says the storm ceased. And then we come to the most important, most popular verses in the history of the world. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish. Now, this is one of four times the word appointed is used in Jonah. If you look over in chapter 4, notice with me, in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, uh, we see the other three times that the word is used. Verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant. I don't know about you. You don't have to go to seminary to discern he's a big God. All right? Uh, you don't have to pay all that tuition money to come to terms with that. He appoint, How do you appoint a plant? He appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. All right? That's verse 6. Uh, then it says, So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And so here in chapter 4, He appoints a plant, a worm, and the wind. And in chapter 1, verse 17, He appoints a fish. And what we see here is that Jonah is clearly telling us, this book is telling us that God is directing the affairs of the created order to accomplish His purposes for this rebellious believer. He has hurled the wind. He is appointing everything that needs to be appointed so that this rebellious believer will carry out God's purposes for his life. And in the process, He's also teaching this rebellious Believer, Just like when he impeded uh, Jonah's flight to Tarshish by hurling the wind. This is a warning to us. It's a warning. It's a, it's a reminder. You cannot thrive. You cannot flourish as an unrepentant, uh, disbelieving, or, or disobedient believer. It's impossible. And that's one of the real important things. Aspects of this book. It's not the only important aspect. Uh, but Romans 15, 4 does tell us this. These things were written from of old. What things? The Old Testament. So that uh, for our instruction. So that through the endurance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. So the Old Testament was written for us primarily to point us to Christ. But it's also to, 
to instruct us uh, and, and to uh, challenge us and to, and to warn us and to give us hope. And so you have this disobedient believer who's trying to thrive on his terms and it will not work. I mean, here, you think about the fact how big is the ocean. Do you realize that we have not... If, if, I think I remember uh, reading this a couple of weeks ago. We have only explored like 5% of the ocean waters. All right? We've, only 5% of the ocean has even been explored. That may be an exaggeration, but I think I heard that a few weeks ago. So you think about how big the ocean is and how small a target uh, Jonah would have been. And God appoints a fish. How do you train a fish? Anybody in here have a goldfish? You, you know, you can, you can train a, a dog. You can't train a cat. They're worthless. But you, you, can, you, you, you can train a dog and you can train certain animals. You cannot train a fish. You just can't do it. And God appoints this fish to carry out His purposes. Why? Because this world is God's world. All right? So when we rebel in God's world as believers, we will not flourish. <clears throat> and notice as well, it doesn't say that this was a well. It was a great fish. And that's important for us. Oh man, I wish he would have poured some water. I'm, I'm empty there. <clears throat> um, why is that important? Liberals, um, thank you, have used this text among other texts, to argue that Jonah is a fable. Alright? Because it's impossible for a man to live inside a fish for that many days or any period of time. Um, and because, uh, especially in the earliest 20th century, um, liberals said that, that you don't have any kind of of a large well that they were arguing for. That he said they, they said that these large whales eat plankton, and none of them have throats large enough to swallow uh, human beings. But since then, and this is kind of silence, thank you, silence the liberals, they have found, scientists have found subspecies of some kind of sperm whale that have mouths large enough to swallow small houses. Okay? And, and in fact, a very important, uh, a very important uh, story uh, on this um, it comes from a story that goes back to 1891 where you have a whaling ship called the Star of the East. And... They spotted this large sperm whale, and uh, they, they brought the, the whale somehow into the boat, and inside that the stomach of this whale was a man named James Bartley. Okay? He was unconscious, but he was alive. Alright? Now, some say that this is an urban legend. Alright? I don't know. I don't know... It's hard to say. But let me just say that it doesn't matter. It does not matter at the end of the day whether that's an urban legend because Jonah's account does not depend on accounts like this. 
We are not dependent on those things to support the authority of Scripture. Scripture stands on its own. It's its own authority. If we have to seek other avenues to defend the authority of Scripture, that's uh, uh, self-refuting in itself. Because what we're saying is there's something else that has higher authority than Scripture. Uh, The reason we believe this is because the Bible teaches this, okay? In fact, we're going to see in a few minutes that Jesus took this at face value. But most importantly, as as we consider this text, the most important thing about this is as this great fish swallows up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly... You have this symbolism of death. Now, there are certain, uh, you know, people who believe that Jonah actually died in the in the well. Um, we, there's two that I know of, Al and Blake. Um, um, uh, um, and, 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 and honestly, very well could have happened. I don't think that's what happened, but it could have happened, Okay. Um, I, I think that it's le- a j- legitimate case to be made for that. God can raise the dead, right? I believe we, 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 do, we do worship that kind of God. But it's no less a miracle to survive inside the belly of a fish. But what you do have, if it's not death, and it could be, okay? If it's not death, it certainly symbolizes death. Uh, he goes into the sea, and that sea represents judgment. As it does everywhere else in the Old Testament. You consider Noah's flood, the sea represents judgment. Uh, You consider the Red Sea, uh, as Moses leads God's people through the Red Sea, judgment. Uh, So the sea always represents some kind of judgment and chaos. Moreover, he was in this fish for three days, um, which in the Hebrew world is the amount of time necessary uh, to confirm death. And so he very well could have died. I, I have no problem with someone holding to that position that Jonah died. But you don't have to have a direct correspondence for it to be something that points us to Jesus. So Jesus, uh, Jonah's death here points forward in redemptive history um, and it finds its ultimate meaning uh, in Jesus. In fact, I want you to see something very interesting. I didn't give Rocky this. But it's a text that uh, we've looked at in this, you know, church a few times. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says in verse 4, Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Alright? Now, what are the Scriptures? The Old Testament. And it says he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Where in the Old Testament Scriptures does it say anyone was raised on the third day? Jonah 1.17. Alright? Actually, there's one other place. It's written by a prophet in the same century at the same time, Hosea. Listen to Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days, He will revive us on the third day. He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Those are the only two places in the Old Testament you have any kind of language being raised up on the third day. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 
In Hosea chapter 6 verse 2, Paul says he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What Jesus, or what Paul is telling us there is that when Jonah was raised on the third day, he was pointing us to something greater, someone greater. So what, that's what we would call uh, a type, okay? And I'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Um, a very important passage for understanding this verse. We're almost done for the night. But in chapter 12, you have Paul, or, or Jesus, in verses 38 and 42, uh, picking up this verse. And he says in verse 38, And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, you're not reading. When you're reading Jonah at face value, what sign are you talking about? Well, the reason it's a sign is because Jesus understands the entire Old Testament's a sign. As we saw earlier, it's pointing us. It's an index finger pointing us to Him. And it says, um, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the fish. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented. Okay? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Does Jesus believe that Jonah is a historical account? Yes. And men who create the world and are raised from the grave, I tend to believe at face value. Okay? And it says, And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who is the greater? Jesus, in the flesh. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon pointed him to, or points us to Jesus, his wisdom, just as the resurrection, if you will, of Jonah from the well uh, points us to Jesus. This is what we call typology. And I give you that word a lot. What is typology? Um, let me give you just a couple of thoughts on typology. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, who has had a huge influence on me, uh, you don't know his name, but he was, uh, he was my outside reader on my dissertation. He is a professor of biblical theology. He's retired now in Sydney, Australia. And here's how he uh, defines typology. It rests on the recognition that the way God spoke and acted in the Old Testament was preparatory. In other words, when He spoke and when He acted, it wasn't the ultimate thing. It was pointing us. It was preparing us for the ultimate thing. And it anticipated the definitive Word and the act of God in Jesus Christ. And so when you see God move in the Old Testament, it's, it's happening in history. It really happened. But it's not the ultimate thing He's doing. It's preparing us for the ultimate thing He's doing that centers on the Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? 
So the exodus really happened, but the exodus points us to the greater exodus in Jesus Christ. And so all of these different things are preparing us for the Messiah. Brian Estrell says, Typological interpretation of the Old Testament is based on the presupposition that the whole Old Testament looks beyond itself for its interpretation. So when you read the Old Testament, you really can't fully understand the purpose for which it was inspired until you read the end of the story. Okay? This is one story. It comes to us as one book, one story, one narrative, and there is one central character. And that central character is the man, Jesus Christ. And I love what O. Palmer Robertson says about this verse. God pursues one man to the death that he might bless the many. God pursued his own son even to the death that many from every nation under heaven might be saved. So, as we go back to Jonah 1.17, when we see that Jonah, even in his rebellion, points us to the greater one to come. In fact, Jonah's name means dove. Isn't that interesting? All right? Now, why is that important? Because the dove represented the anointing of God. The dove came upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus like a dove. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So that's a lot of information. And I want to close by just asking this question. We've been closing our Sunday nights with questions, getting your thoughts. I want to ask these questions for my application for this message. Because it's never enough just to fill our minds with information. I've said tonight that Jonah is both a type and an example. Okay? He's a type in that he points us to the greater one to come, but he's also an example to us. Here's the question I want us to, to consider before we close tonight. Why is it important that we consider Jonah as a type? And why is it important that we consider him an example? In other words, what does it mean when I ask that Jonah is a type? What does it mean? What does it mean when I say that he's an example? Why is it important we consider both? Any thoughts on that? Maybe the question is not clear. We've seen that Jesus, or Jonah, is a type. He points us to Jesus, but he's also an example to us. I think a lot of us tend to be kind of on our own. Like, uh, in my early years here at the church, I'm going to have to serve in a different capacity. At a point, 